to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions and to live more fulfilling lives. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. It helps others to discover the podcast through the algorithm recommendations process. Today, we're very excited to have Christy Cox as our guest. Christy was diagnosed with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome after a 17-year quest to find answers. She just published a fascinating book called Holding It All Together When You're Hypermobile, Achieving a Better Life Experience with EDS, POTS, and Joint Instability. Christy's book explores the basics of hypermobile EDS, its common comorbidities, tips on getting diagnosed, coping strategies, lifestyle changes, and tons of other resources on how to get help. Check out her website for more free resources for EDS patients. The link is in the episode description, and you can find it at holdingitalltogether.com. The book also delves into the future of scientific medical research in search of tools for earlier diagnosis and treatment, and how to foster a positive mindset in the face of despair. Christy, hello, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Let's jump right in and start with the basics. How did you first learn about hypermobility and what was your path to a diagnosis? You know, I probably learned the same way other people do where you might have heard about it from some family member who had maybe like, you know, sensory issues or things like where they were thought to be double jointed. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time I heard about it. And, you know, I never really put it together. Um, I don't think my parents did, but in hindsight, you know, I can look back and see there were definitely like signs for me. There were, you know, like the banana knees and I just really thought I was good at yoga (laughs) or, you know, I was prone to injury and had a lot of strange, unexplainable health issues. But for me, my journey to finally getting to the right diagnosis came when I had a, uh, a literally, uh, you know, hit in the face when my car um, crashed into the stopped car in front of me where I had passed out, which of course I didn't know I was doing, but it was due to dysautonomia and POTS from syncope. So I passed out while I was driving in 2016, which led me down, you know, a path like everyone would do. You go see a physical therapist because you think you have whiplash. And I went in there and, you know, I laid on the table and uh, the therapist reached up underneath my neck and said, uh, uh-oh, and like called over one of his colleagues and, you know, the colleague sort of felt the same thing. And he said, I think you need to go to the ER. And I said, what? You know, completely confused. And uh, he wrote down on a sticky note something and said, go to the ER right now. And I was like, should I be worried? And he's like, just, this is really the best thing. He's trying to be calm. So I go out to my car and I look at this post-it note and it has, you know, medical jibber jabber that I don't understand. It says Atlantio axle instability, cranial cervical instability. So I'm on my phone, I'm Googling it. I'm like, oh gosh, you know, so I go to the ER. I try to explain that to them. They do flexion extension x-rays. And as many of us go to the ER with a problem, we get dismissed. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need to go home, take a muscle relaxer, drink a glass of wine. Yeah. So the untrained eyes that don't know what to look for dismissed me like so many of us do. But I was fortunate 
and that I did have some family members kind of down, down the tree, so to speak, that had a knowledge of this. And so I reached out to them and, uh, and they said, well, you need to, what the first step is, is to go see a geneticist. So they worked with me and kind of helped me learn how to advocate. And I flew to Texas to see a geneticist and they came and met me and helped me answer the questions for everything from like the Biden score to, you know, like lifelong history that you don't know isn't abnormal. You just think it's the way everyone is. And that led me that afternoon, he called a cardiologist down the road and said, you need to see this patient who's in state for, you know, the day. And they kept me for a week. And long story short, boom, boom, boom. You've got hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. You've got POTS. And, you know, the, the accident was caused by um, passing out, which then led me, took, a, took another year or two, but led me to the diagnosis of cranial cervical instability, where my skull was sliding off the back of my spinal cord by more than five millimeters, which sounds horrid, but I was really lucky to have people that could help me and the tenacity to do the hard work, to find the right providers, to get the diagnosis and to get the help. And that's such a hard part of it is to get the diagnosis. Absolutely. And that's such a fascinating story. Thank you for sharing. Um, it's so interesting how that person was able to determine that you had atlantoaxial instability from a physical examination like that. Like I, I've never heard of that before and kudos to them for really being up on their anatomy and knowing that because, and then it's so interesting, the juxtaposition of that person noticing it, you know, on you through a physical exam and then telling you to, to go to the ER where you're, expecting some help for this very serious condition and then they're dismissive and it's like it's so frustrating because it's something that I've definitely heard many times I've experienced myself and um that 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 dismissiveness um is really uh psychologically difficult and um and it's just and so unfortunate but it's amazing that you were you know you were able to find the right resources to get you to a diagnosis. So um, that that's good in the end, but yet, yet again, another testament to how much awareness is really still lacking about these conditions. Absolutely. I mean, a lack of resources, a lack of awareness and a, and a disbelief that it's even like a real thing mm -hmm. is still the state of where we are in the medical community today. And I believe people like you are leading the way, you know, patients are having to advocate and get out there and do things for themselves to help the kind of system catch up with them because, you know, they're struggling and they're finding information and they're, you know, bringing it to whether it's doctors or clinics or, you know, scientists or whatever, you know, I mean, we're, we're kind of what I call like crowdsourcing our care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it is. It's so well, and thank you for that. Um, but it's so great to see this community of people coming together and sharing information, um, which you know, I, I think has, you know, saved my life, at least metaphorically, if not otherwise, I can't imagine where I would be without knowing about these things. Um, but it's also just so sad that we have to do that, because it, yeah. it's, you know, 
watching sort of other friends and family members go through other illnesses and diagnoses and watching them just be able to rely on, you know, medical professionals knowledge, which, you know, it's not, it's limited. They only have so much time and everything. But um, on the other hand, it's, this is something that's been around forever. You know, I say this all the time, but Ehlerson Damos did their research well over a hundred years ago now. And so this has been known of for quite a while. And yet the amount of kind of ignorance around it and, and just the disbelief, like it, it's, it's shocking and kind of unfathomable um, that there isn't kind of more of a, a desire to investigate the physical components that go along with this, even in an instance like yours, where another professional identified that you have this very, very serious condition. Um, so it's not like you were just coming in with, you know, just printouts um, from the internet, you know, and not to knock that because that's what a lot of us have had to do. Yeah. I mean, that's the route, but it's like, so even when another medical professional notices this, there, there can still be that resistance and that's, ugh, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. And, you know, we could probably do a whole nother discussion about why, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. does that boil down to, you know, that the, a, a very large percentage of people that have Ehlers-Danlos are female mm-hmm. and, you know, comma, that means females are dismissed more often for reasons X, Y, and Z. Again, another discussion, but I mean, it's, it's a fact, it's what happens. And so, you know, whether it was my grandmother's age or, you know, whatever, they just thought you were like, you know, cranky Mm -hmm. or they thought, you know, you know, so it's like, no, these are real things happening to real people. And I don't think until someone really steps forward to be like a face of this condition to help educate people that it's going to get the recognition and the awareness that it so much deserves. I agree. And I think that that would be so important or even to have like kind of a, a group of, of faces to kind of represent this, the spectrum nature of these conditions. But I think that kind of representation in the public eye is so important because people tend to consume or receive information through different like sort of legitimized, let's say channels, you know, the news or the paper or whatever. And so I think, you know, because it's so widespread in the community that even family members um, have a really hard time believing what's going on, even after having lived in a household with someone experiencing these symptoms for a long time. It's like, I think a lot of people kind of think, well, if this really was a thing, I would have heard about it by now. (laughs) Um, And, or people would be talking about it or, you know, we, hear from more people with this and and I understand that in some way but it's it it doesn't make it any easier to actually deal with I think um and so yeah you're right any aspiring uh Netflix show writers out there or uh you know (laughs) absolutely yeah and we were we were just talking about this um for a moment earlier I've kind of been thinking about this too in terms of representation and and how to kind of portray this condition to people because there is a lot that's really, really difficult and that anyone's kind of mind is going to resist some people that are in extreme suffering with, 
you know, no known, you know, treatment that really works across the board. Um, and it, it's really, it's, it's, the story is kind of a hard sell to the public, especially I think the way, um, it sometimes is when you, the very few times when you do hear about it, the portrayals sometimes are, um, not representative, um, I'll say at the very least. Um, and yeah, I think just, I think about whether, you know, there's a way to kind of find humor in some of all of this to, to get sort of the mass populace um, engaged in the story. Um, Not to say that, you know, this condition is funny. Um, Certainly it's not. Um, And it can be, you know, just absolutely horrifically painful and just involves so much suffering. But yeah, I I kind of, you know, think of creative ways of like, how do I um, present this in a way that's not, off-putting and that people are willing to engage with the topic. Um, because I think until we have really a, a critical mass of awareness in society, um, you know, and, and hopefully among the medical professionals as well, um, I, you know, it's just hard to imagine, you know, a world in which we're allowed to, you know, function at the top of our capabilities um, because the world is just very much not accessible to us in in so many ways, both um, emotionally in terms of representing, you know, or interacting with other people, and then obviously the physical um, obstacles and challenges that we all face as well. Um, so here's hoping that um, yeah. at some point there will be. I was to say, you're doing your part. I'm trying to do mine. And, you know, that's really all that we can try to do from our own perspective. Definitely. And speaking of which, it's a nice segue into my next question, which is, how did you end up becoming interested in patient advocacy? And what type of work do you do primarily as a patient advocate? So as many of your listeners are probably, you know, struggling with, if you're forced to spend any amount of time in the medical system, particularly in the U.S., you realize there are a great deal of problems. And a lot of people say, like, it's a broken system, but I don't believe it's broken. I think it's working exactly as the designers who built it wanted it to work. And that's the insurance people, the big pharma people, you know, maybe even the doctors, because they're not serving their patients they're serving profits. Mm-hmm. And so they're making profits off of people's illness and sickness. And, you know, you have to learn how to self-educate and ultimately learn how to self-advocate yourself to be able to leverage this system to your benefit for your own health, which is horrible, you know, just to stay alive or get the right procedure, find, you know, the right providers and to really just optimize the outcomes of your own care, um, which, you know, is what patient advocacy is. It's, you know, it's, it's a very new field and, it's starting out with a lot of people who are like former medical workers or nurses or people like that who are coming out and saying, there's something wrong with this and I want to help people get better outcomes. And so I'm going to try to help them learn how to navigate the system. And so to answer the second part of your question, like the type of advocacy that I'm doing is, is just that I'm trying to teach other frustrated 
patients or caregivers of patients, like how to get through the red tape and how to prepare for medical appointments and, you know, how to find the right types of providers so that you can maximize that little tiny 10 or 15 minute window of an appointment that you get with a provider so that you can get what you need out of it. Um, And believe it or not, it's so hard and there's not a lot of resources to be able to do that. So we get dismissed we get disbelieved, you know, at Ehlers-Danlos, there's not a great deal of, you know, medical research. There's so much yet needed to be done. And the information on the internet is, you know, it's, it's the wild, wild west. So what I try to do is help people find that credible information, find the credible, knowledgeable providers who can help them that aren't going to say, nah, I'm sorry. I don't think you have anything wrong with you. You're crazy because that's what happens to us. Absolutely. And that's such a necessary and important service. And it's so commendable to you that you're doing this and, you know, channeling your own um, frustration and suffering and everything that you went through into um, being able to help others. I mean, that's, that's something that, you know, really can transform that experience from being one of, powerlessness to trying to empower people. Um, and yet it's, it's still very frustrating that it falls to people like you. And there's so many other just fantastic patient advocates that I've, um, met through, um, you know, just knowing people in the community and through the podcast. And it, it makes all the difference in the world to have somebody who can kind of guide you. Um, and again, hopefully at some point, um, there will be more interest in this condition in the medical community um, and and in the system at large that you just spoke of, because, um, yeah, I, I think we, we fall through the cracks in a lot of ways. Um, and frankly, I think, you know, a lot of the population does um, with their medical issues. But um, there, there's certainly great challenges when it comes to treating these conditions. You know, I, I, my hat really goes off to those incredible physicians that I've met, you know, some of whom I've been interviewed before, who really are just dedicated to, you know, making their patients' lives better. And, and this is a really difficult situation. Um, but there's so much opportunity here as well. If someone would see it and recognize it, um, and it, it seems like until there isn't some sort of, you know, treatment or pill or, you know, something that is kind of um, a profit generator that we're kind of stuck in this no man's land. But the, the externalized costs of our suffering onto caregivers, loved ones, friends, family, um, loss of working years or, or being able to be at our full capacity and, and the suffering to ourselves is immense. And so... Oh, yeah. Again, looking forward to hopefully a brighter future where, um, you know, maybe this this won't be such a struggle. But in the meantime, it's it's just incredible what what you're doing. Well, thank you. And, you know, the same to you and all of the people that are, you know, a part of your community, because all of our stories matter. All of our stories are important. And you know, if it takes us all getting together and being a community that comes together 
between advocates and patients and doctors that understand this and, you know, people that get it and just pushing and being pioneers. I mean, if that's what it's going to take, that's what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it, it has, it has given me a bit more hope um, recently in, um, you know, speaking with people like you, seeing the ama- amazing reception of your book, which we'll get to in a moment. Um, but it does feel like there's a bit of a, a tide turning that, you know, patients are realizing, um, some patients at least, that, you know, this isn't something they have to live with in shame, that, you know, they can find people who are like them and interact with them and and share share these personal stories and, you know, hopefully, you know, trade information and work with, you know, hopefully some medical professionals who are at least, you um, interested or able to learn, even if they're not, um, you know, well-versed and, and again, well-versed in what, like you said, there's not really yeah. much research out there. And some of the research that is out there is kind of like, Oh, is this going in the wrong direction? Um, but it, it does give me more hope to see, um, so many great, you know, patient advocates and just, um, like sort of disability advocates out there on, on social media and out there in the world, um, kind of trying to break down the stigmas associated with this. So here's hoping, I guess. Absolutely. Um, on your website, you mentioned that quote, EDS and hypermobility are no longer rare, but rarely diagnosed. A global community of support is growing and the disease is becoming more recognized thought to be now one in every 500 and I think that number is based off of the excellent Demler et al. papers in the British Medical Journal, which I highly encourage anyone to go out and check out. Um, I'll drop a link in the description, um, but they're very interesting. Um, after spending so much time researching the hypermobile community and the issues facing it, what do you think are the biggest reasons why EDS is rarely diagnosed? We've kind of touched on a few of them, um, but not actually rare, in fact. And what can we do to increase awareness and help hypermobile people find the resources they need? You know, that is, that is the, the million-dollar question because, like you said, I don't think it's rare. I think it's rarely diagnosed. I think it's rarely recognized. You know, the the scientists um, at the Norris Lab and Dr. Norris and, and Courtney Gensimer, you know, they theorized about a year ago that it was one in 500 people were affected by this. And I heard something this morning from them that they're changing that number now to one in 300, which is dramatic. That's millions of people around the world. I mean, can you imagine having another disorder that was this common that no one has ever heard of? I mean, you know, there's not very many specialty doctors so far for hypermobile EDS, at least. There's no tests. There's no, you know, standard treatment. I mean, you know, they're barely even learning a sentence about it in medical school. And so the lack of resources right now, in my opinion, is like one of the biggest problems. And that's what led me in my own little personal healing journey was to put together this book of resources. You know, it was it was a test after I had my CCI surgery. Like, can I sit in a chair and have blood flow to my brain? Can I, you know, type in on a keyboard? And for a while I couldn't, it was using like voice capture, but to be able to say, I've collected all this information and it's too juicy. I have to do something with it. I have to share it with other people. And so 
you know, putting together information. And, and like you said, the book is, is really like basics. It's really like step one of even understanding what these terms mean, how they relate, how they affect your body. You know, I mean, if you're kind of a lifer with this and you've been researching it, you might find my book to be too simplistic. But if you're that parent of a young teenager and you just are noticing kind of this weird thing and that weird thing, it might start putting things together for you so you can find the right resources. You might be able to find the right doctor or an app to help track your symptoms or whatever it is. So when we as a community get ourselves educated, which is in the process, then a provider might come up. For example, I'm sure you've heard of Dr. Alyssa Zingman at PRISM. She's outside of uh, Washington, D.C., and she had an article that was published in the Washington Post around a year ago and uh, then followed on with something in People magazine. And her small practice was so overwhelmed, she had a four-year waiting list. Now, she's smart. She's been able to hire some people and get them trained, and that list is going down. And I, I got to have my own personal appointment there. And it's like life-altering to actually be heard and to be understood and to have a doctor sit with you for two hours and listen to you and tell you, I get it. So it's that expansion of the knowledge base and expansion of the resources that I think is what's going to be really important you know, to getting to not just rare, but getting diagnosed and getting understanding. And um, one of the key things that I believe that's part of that, and I'm hoping this is part of what will happen in our next generation, is building this skill that's really, really difficult. And I call it being a patient patient. Hmm. And, and that doesn't mean that I think you should sit back and wait and give up. Not at all. It's that we're waiting for them to catch up to us. Mm-hmm. We're, we're sitting in doctor's offices for eight hours, you know, when you're at a particular specialist that you've got the appointment with, or you've been on the waiting list for a year, or you just found out it's going to take eight months to get that MRI or whatever it is. It's learning how to be a patient patient because it's just not here yet. And that's the stopgap between now and the next generation that hopefully, and I'm with you, I'm a lot of hope because I want these scientists at MUSC and around the world to figure out this genetic, you know, code so that it could be easier. It could be faster to diagnose, to treat, to figure out this, you know, so common disorder that too many of us are struggling with. Definitely. Um, I, I know I, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, and yeah, I, Courtney is just, Courtney Gensmer at um, MUSC is just incredible and doing some amazing advocacy. I guess I'm just kind of reminded of um, a comment that another one of the um, major doctors in the community um, made with respect to this kind of hunt for the gene um, that, you know, that may be um, it, it may, that may still not be enough. I mean, he, he pointed out that there are 13 other or 14, now it's at 14 genes that have been found and yet not really much has happened with that. 
And, you know, I, so it's something I feel very conflicted about on one hand. Yes. I feel like it would be very helpful to have those markers be known. Um, and yet I guess I, I kind of wonder, I mean, if, if doctors aren't taking high tryptase levels and POTS tilt table tests or flexion extension x-rays, these markers of the physical nature of this condition, I mean, even the Biton score, you know, I, I roll my eyes when I hear the word psychosomatic being, you know, thrown around <laughs> when it comes to hypermobility, because I'm like, yes, you know, I have stress and experienced times of anxiety. I mean, frankly, I think probably a lot of people do, but no matter how, no, no matter what my mind is doing, it's not making my thumb able to touch my forearm, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's like, it's just, it's very strange about what kinds of evidence of a physical condition are recognized and seen as legitimate um, and what aren't. And yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know much about the experience of um, the other types of EDS for which there is a, a clear genetic marker, you know, and if they're able to get better treatment, but I kind of get the sense that in general, Ehlers-Danlos is just like this forgotten elephant in the room, so to speak. Um, and, and yeah, that kind of goes back to our earlier conversation about like how information is communicated to people. And it does seem that people receive information from other people. Um, and if it's medical or expert knowledge, you know, often people kind of expect a certain credential profile or something to be behind that. Um, but yeah, until we have people very publicly being featured, speaking accurately about this condition um, at scale. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's a strange holding pattern we're in, but I'm, I'm also very curious to see, to see where things go. And in the meantime, I think though, people getting out the word and at least educating the community and, um, you know, trying to build you know, groups and, and kind of foundations of support, that's kind of like where we're at. And, and that seems to be, you know, kind of coming along. Um, but still, you know, we just know that there's so many people out there who have never heard of this condition, who, who are suffering from it at present, and, you know, maybe labeled all kinds of other things other than having a connective tissue condition. And it's tough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love the saying uh, that a doctor said, I can't remember her name, said, you know, if you can't connect the issues, think connective mm -hmm. tissues. You know, it's, it's like if you just could say that one thing mm -hmm. to people in the medical community so that they would open their aperture to, to go, oh, wait, let's get out of my specialized care, mm -hmm. you know, hyper focus mm -hmm. and look beyond, you know, this one area that I've studied deeply into and go, you know, I may be a gastroenterologist, but like this person is having issues with, you know, their hands or, you know, whatever it is, just to, just to go, let's think bigger and broader. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, and that is such a great saying. And, and I too, I like those things that are really pithy and simple and just cut right to the point, and it would be so great if there was like a mass education campaign of different providers to to you know have that concept in their head of if you can't connect the issues, think connective tissues. But then also you know to be informed about you know the Biden scale, and that really almost any professional can 
can do that piece because it, you know, it doesn't require um, genetic testing or anything expensive. Um, yeah. Your, your family GP could do mm-hmm, that. Absolutely. And it's something that, you know, gastroenterologists or um, neurologists, like other specialists who are seeing a lot of, you know, almost by design, like one in 300. Yeah. That's, that's quite a lot. And, you know, frankly, I think it's even more than that. I mean, I, I think it's, there's a bit of a distinction between the people who are hypermobile and either asymptomatic or um, mildly enough symptomatic and then sort of the more debilitating end of the spectrum. And so I'm not, you know, exactly sure how we parse all that out, especially in the context of, a, you know, what's clearly a genetic condition. Um, but uh, it's just... <sighs> We got to keep our hope. Mm-hmm. Yep, we got to keep our hope, and and that's why we have a community together. I mean, the the patient community is is what's had me moving forward. It's what sort of was a big part of why I put together this resource of a book. Was you know I had a few rare medical providers that were helping me. And they were knowledgeable and I wanted to ask them, what do you recommend? And so it just led me down this path. Like I was being led by something, you know, larger than myself mm-hmm. of, you know, a provider saying, you know, well, there's so little information out there, you know, that you should, you should put something together. And so, you know, I would talk to this doctor and I would interview another doctor and, and they would introduce me to someone else. And it was just this flow. And, and then it was like, well, you know, who, who else? out there in the community has this, that's an advocate for this. And, you know, I got the opportunity to speak to Camille Schreier, who's Miss America 2020, Mm -hmm. who has EDS. And, you know, it was this whole patient community coming together. And, um, and to me, that word community, it means two things. It means like the, the, the calm part is the communication and the sharing and the unity is all of us are coming together. And so that's really in my mind, um, kind of the magic of what's happening with this is the community. Absolutely. I completely agree. And even in my limited years, I think it's been about, yeah, just over six years now, um, since I was diagnosed and it's, it's incredible. I feel like every time I start to feel like I'm getting a lay of the land of, um, you know, who's out there doing what I discover a whole other rabbit hole of, you know, other people or, you know, other organizations and work that's going on. And it's just, it's, it's amazing um, kind of stitching all that together and trying to um, get us on the same page, at least about the key issues that, um, you know, many of us kind of agree on and, and see on, see as central. Um, But it's, it's a bit disorienting. It's like, just when you feel like you Mm -hmm. really get, you know, to, to know about the various comorbidities and, you know, who's out there doing what it's like, there's always more to learn. Um, like you Mm -hmm. said, it really is the wild west. (laughs) (laughs) So let's, um, shift gears now and talk about this amazing book that you recently published. Um, it had to have been very difficult to compile such an extensive book with the symptoms you've been experiencing and that you just described for us. How did you decide to write the book and what are the most important takeaways that you want to leave the readers um, of your work with? 
Well, I got the original inspiration, um, as I mentioned, from one of my doctors on my care team, um, Dr. Eric Singman, who was my neuro-ophthalmologist and helping me try to figure out my vision problems that, you know, it's all, you know, I understand how it all connects now with, you know, cranial cervical instability and POTS and stuff. But, you know, he was able to say, you know, I think that you have a lot of information here. You should do something with it. And it was like, you know, you're right. I really should. What should I do? And, you know, I know a book is out of date the second you publish it, you know, so it's always been like, this is not the best method to do this, but it's what I could do. It was, you know, like trying to gather information and get it in documentation and try to organize it in a fashion that was legible to other people. And, you know, it took me a year and a half and, and it's been wonderful. And I'm so, you know, it's probably going to be one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a simple patient perspective story of like what I tried, what I learned, what worked, what didn't. You know, I don't have medical training. It's just the experience of a patient. But apparently, you know, the response to it is there's a whole lot of other people out there who are struggling with this and trying to face not only the physical challenges of, of hypermobility, but the emotional aspects of, you know, facing chronic illness and, you know, all those sorts of things that unfortunately you learn about the hard way when you're, you know, becoming a, a professional patient, so to speak. Um, you know, you, you learn the name of what to Google and what symptoms to track and, you know, all these tricks and tips. And, and I just thought I have to put this together and share it. That's a wonderful story. And I, I completely agree. I think patients telling their stories um, is such an important part of this. And I'm almost always struck by when I speak with other hypermobile people, um, the number of similarities that we have, like I hear the same phrases over and over and over again. And then also the differences that we all have in our different physical manifestations. So you know, I, again, being curious about the research, we're, we're at, I guess, 14 types now. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious, are there really 20? Are there 100? Are there more? Yeah. Because there is so much variance, or are some of those variances driven by environmental factors, like our social support setting, access to care? You know, I think there's probably a lot of variables here. Oh, gosh. I mean, we could that kind of investigation could take decades, mm -hmm. but I'm, I'm with you, whether it's, you know, like environmental factors or, you know, the, the nature of the, the way that, you know, we're treating our bodies or sitting in desks all mm -hmm. the time or, you know, all sorts of things like that. It's, it's a, it's fascinating mm -hmm. to me. So. Absolutely. And, but that's, it kind of goes back to, we're in this morass of the wild west with, you know, so in a way, so much information and in a way, no information at all. And yet all and and so I really relate to that feeling of thinking, well, what can I do? Um, and I had tried starting a book, writing a book a few years ago and compiled a lot of information, but I'm just not able to sit at a computer for long periods and struggle with that. I get it. <laughs> I get yeah. it. It is, it's tough on the spine. It's, I, I saw, it is tough. There's like some amazing chairs out there that are super expensive, but they look incredible for supporting an unstable spine. So, you know. 
but I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it was a test for me mm-hmm. of, you know, I hadn't worked in like four years and can I sit here? Is the blood going to flow to my brain? And, you know, it was, it started out as just a few minutes a day. And uh, I'll confess over the past probably four or five months of trying to get this book to the launch point. I mean, I'm just pushing myself too hard. You know, I'm, I'm wearing myself out and I'm having to say, hang on a second. You got to take your own (laughs) advice and take care of your health first, Mm -hmm. because, you know, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to help take care of anybody else. That old, you know, put on your, your face mask first from the airline, you Mm -hmm. know, attendant. I mean, it's really sage advice. Yep. And yet, It is so difficult to implement. That's certainly something I struggle with a lot too. And I think a lot of us are socialized to focus on others and being helpful to others. And there's this idea, which I think is starting to change with kind of more awareness, um, maybe particularly in sort of some of the younger people coming up of the need for self-care. But there's this idea of being selfish, you know, to taking care of yourself or doing things for yourself is selfish. And, but that's so backwards because, you know, like you said, if, if we're not taking care of ourselves, we really can't be, you know, of use to, to others if we're not, uh, you know, if we're drawing from a well that's dry um, versus drawing from a well that's been replenished, it's, it does make such a big difference, but it's, so hard to implement in practice. And I also love that expression. I once heard someone say, oh, he's the kind of guy who puts on his own oxygen mask first. And I thought, what? That's what you're supposed to do, though. <laughs> like, so I, it's it's very perplexing how um, these concepts end up shaking out in the world. But I agree completely. But it's also easier said than done, and something I definitely really struggle with as well. So I hope you're able to kind of take a rest and take some time off. It's got to be tough because on one hand, it's so exciting to have such a positive reception to this book. It's, you know, doing phenomenally well. And so many people are um, engaged and and really excited about it. Um, But that's got to be really draining too. So I definitely. It's, it's very much like a, uh, like a movement is, is, um, you know, I'm just kind of on the edge of a, of a bigger, important wave that you're a part of that MUSC, you know, all of these people are a part of. So I'm just trying to like, hang on while I can Mm -hmm. and, you know, do what I can. Um, You know, I appreciate your, um, your compliments, but you know, I'm just one patient just like you are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of, of this is we all try to find a little bit of meaning Mm -hmm. into, to what's happening to us. And in our own ways and the ways that we know how we try to like take it forward, you know, as a chosen cause. I mean, if you're, if your family's affected like by breast cancer, you might dedicate yourself to raising money at the Susan G. Komen walk. I mean, it's whatever it is that is, is the thing that impacts your life and, and results and maybe even changes the trajectory of your life. Like it did mine and yours, you know, you, you, you put your energy and your passion into it. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's a powerful thing sharing our stories. Like you said, we're, we're just individual patients, but um, there, there can be great power in, in sharing that. And, and certainly in the venue that you've chosen. Um, and yeah, I think the reception really is a testament to 
you know, what incredible work you did and being able to transform that feeling of suffering into, you know, even if you, if something you went through resonates with someone and they're able to find something that helps them or get some clarity and answers and find some relief and, and avoid some of the pitfalls that you and I have experienced, it, it does, it finds a way to make that suffering more meaningful and moves it from this position, like I said, of feeling very powerless um, into feeling like, oh. Empowered. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you're exactly right. It's if, if, you know, I said when I was putting this together, if it helped one person, it would be worth Mm -hmm. it because that was one less person that had to sort of go through Mm -hmm. this. Absolutely. And it's definitely helping way more than it's, you know, it's, I think it's exceeded kind of a lot of our wildest expectations. It's really getting out there and, and it's so great. I mean, you know, the book disjointed is really great as well, but I think the, you know, the more content and the more options there are, you know, that's great for the community because some approaches will resonate with some people, others with others. And so I think um, there's, there's a lot of space for, for these stories. And so, yeah, anyone out there who's, you know, thinking about telling their own story, um, you know, I think, I think your story, it it definitely, it's, it spoke to me a lot. And um, yeah, I think what you're doing is just incredible. Well, you know, one of the things that's happened that's so incredible as a result of this, for example, is the author editor of Disjointed has reached out to me and, you know, we may have an opportunity to like get together with some of these other organizations and do something that's, you know, kind of bigger, more powerful. And it, it's that momentum um, that, that sort of keeps you going when you don't necessarily feel good that day. Mm-hmm. I might, I might get up because I'm supposed to email somebody back about that conversation that we're going to have about that. And I've never experienced anything like that in my life. And I've always been a career focused person prior to disability. Um, But I mean, I find I'm getting up and getting moving for reasons that are so beyond anything I ever understood before. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And it is striking. I mean, so many members of the community, I, I speak to people, you know, through the podcast listeners that reach out the sort of experts very frequently. And it, it really almost never ceases to amaze me how collaborative and cooperative, um, you know, a lot of us, we, we like working together. I think a lot of us, um, there's certainly a, an absolute spectrum on this as with many things, but I think a lot of us are very deeply social people and and we love that connection and working together and you know not just everything being about ourselves or our perspective but but really trying to to foster that community and move things forward and so i'm i'm so happy to hear that because yeah disjointed is phenomenal and it's really kind of the first major book of its kind um and it, but it's so oh, it's like the bible yes, right yes, yeah it's amazing and, but it's so great to be, you know, working on these collaborations because, you know, as you've mentioned, like part of the struggle here is that so many of us are dealing with pretty debilitating symptoms, um, at least some of the time, you know, and some in the community 
virtually all the time. Um, and yet, so we, we all want to do what we can do within our capabilities and our, you know, what our body will allow. Um, and so I think being able to kind of lean on each other when we need and to, um, you know, be a shoulder for someone else when they need, I think that's, you know, one of the possible paths to us getting to a place of more stability and just awareness and basic tolerance of, of what and who we are. Yeah, I agree. So do you have any advice for others who might be thinking of getting into patient advocacy? Are there any programs or certifications that you would recommend or suggest? So patient advocacy, as I mentioned, is kind of a, you know, a new, a newer thing in terms of, you know, it's only been around for maybe 10 or 20 years and it's, it's not quite, you know, it's not like you can Google, you know, jobs in patient advocacy. And if you did find them, they're working for insurance companies or for health, you know, conglomerates and things like that. But to be a independent patient advocate, you know, I hate that we're in a place where it's necessary, but we, but it is. Um, I did a lot of research to be able to get trained in doing this. And, and I, was trained by um, a program that's called AFA, which is the Alliance for Professional Healthcare Advocates. And they offer a directory of, of um, patient advocates for all kinds of conditions or, you know, like uh, services. Um, maybe it's helping you reduce your medical bills. Maybe it's helping you navigate the system. Maybe it's, you know, how to prepare to get ready for your surgery, you know, all sorts of things like that. And there is a certification for it. Um, the, the BCPA uh, is a body that certifies patient advocates. And so it's getting to become more recognized. But like many sort of professional services, you know, you, you have to do the same sorts of things where you have to have insurance to protect yourself. You have to have contracts to make sure that all parties understand what you're getting into. And the challenge is that society on the whole, in my opinion, they're not quite to the point where they recognize or they realize this is a service that you really need. And it's something you just can't leave to chance. Um, I mean, if you were, you know, say pulled over by a police person and, you know, got put in the slammer, <laughs> you know, you instinctively, you would know I need to hire like a lawyer or someone to help me navigate that court system. But, you know, that person knows the ins and out. Well, it's the same here. This has helped navigating the complexities of a medical system and where the rules are not in your favor. And so how could you leave your most important asset, which is your health, to anything like chance? So, you know, people hire a trainer to get more fit or to do physical therapy or diet or nutrition it's, it's a matter of people needing to kind of open their minds to the idea that you might have to hire somebody to navigate a complex system that's full of red tape. And more people are, are being trained in it. More people are being educated. It's becoming more aware. But I think in, in the healthcare of the future, which because of the pandemic probably is, 
you know, growing explosively because people are recognizing, you know, that health is something that not only is important, but it's something that you can talk about publicly. It's something that you need to get help for, and it's okay to ask for help. And so I think there's a lot of change brewing. You know, when I listened to the State of the Union from President Biden or earlier this year, I remember thinking, I've never listened in my, you know, 50 years on the planet to a State of the Union address that almost every single topic was related to health. You know, it might have been about veterans and their health, or it might have been about this budget and that health, but like wellness and health are becoming first and foremost in people's minds. And so it's, it's time. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's, it's encouraging to see there being a lot more public discussion of these matters that were um, and still are in many regions and among many people highly taboo. Um, you know, I was certainly raised to not talk about medical issues that it's. Oh gosh, no, you don't talk about medical issues. You don't talk about your emotions. Mm -hmm. You don't talk about any Mm -hmm. of that. I mean, if, if anybody in my like family of origin is going to listen to this, they're going to be ashamed. I was on here. And that's, it's so, it's so sad, but also that silver lining you were talking about, about how there, there is kind of this movement. I think you described there being sort of a wave and, um, and, and I really like that analogy to like the experience of if you go to prison or there's legal trouble, you know, people just know like it's it's very ingrained and it's on TV all the time, you know, that, you know, you, in the context like that, you would need a lawyer to help you. And it's, you know, most people aren't even sort of aware of the existence of patient advocates, let alone um, what they can do um, to sort of help patients. And um, yeah, hopefully there'll be some kind of. Ugh, it's a public relations campaign or like I said, a show or something that kind of popularizes this notion. And, and again, on the sort of flip side of that, it's, it is unfortunate that the people that we are trained to go to in that context, you know, doctors um, often look at us and, and for whatever reason, they, they seem to see the picture of health and then are very dismissive. So it's unfortunate that, you know, patient advocates, a lot of whom are, you know, learning, kind of field work, like learning, you know, from their experiences, their own experiences, those they speak to, um, that they have to fill this role. But in the meantime, until we get to a place of more physician awareness, it's an incredibly valuable service and, um, and has the potential to be very fulfilling, but also as we've kind of touched on before, it can just be incredibly difficult and draining too. And that's where if some of us can kind of work together and, and share the load a little bit and, and collaborate. I think there's great, yeah, great opportunities in that kind of a configuration. Yeah, I agree. So in terms of your own experience with Ehlers-Danlos, um, are, are there any tips or tricks that have been most helpful um, th- that you've tried or have there been things that you tried that were absolutely not helpful or even harmful? You know, that is a, that is the greatest question And as I was trying to put together this resource, you know, I kept asking myself, like, what worked? What have I done? What did I learn? And I brought it to, you know, the the pages for the reader in the reality of how I went through it. And, you know, you have such brain fog 
and you can't remember sometimes, you know, to eat, <laughs> you know, I mean, you just, you're, you're at a loss. And so I used to have, um, post-it notes around my house that would say like, you know, move your body or, you know, like make sure to take your medicine or it would be, you know, eat a healthy meal, whatever. And so as I was sitting down trying to put this book together, I started realizing a lot of these things that I've come to rely on, they started with the letter M. And so I started referring to them as my M&Ms. Um, but for obvious copyright reasons, I just call them my M's because despite the fact that I had a few peanut M&M's along the way, <laughs> I, we don't call them M&M's, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I came to call this simple, simple list of these basic things that I did to try to, you know, heal and deal and get better. And it was, it was things like managing your pain, you know, figuring out the medical system, Um, learning how to be mindful and meditate, um, which has helped me a great deal with pain. And so my like tips and tricks are, you know, these things I call M's. Um, For me personally, one of the big game changers was, and you hear it all the time, and it's one of those things that's so easy to just go, yeah, whatever, is to drink more water, have more salt, and put electrolytes in your water. But when you have POTS, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I have to move somehow, some way every day. I mean, some days I do not feel like it. I mean, I can't even, you know, like walk up the stairs or go around the block. But the more pain I'm in, the more I need to move. And in the long run, it's been really important for me. And and this, is, this has been a process, and I, I won't even say that I'm through it, but you have to come to accept that your life is different now with chronic illness and, you know, to be flexible, <laughs> no pun intended, you know, but I mean, it takes time and it takes the people around you time because they don't know how to respond to you. You're going to have changes in your relationships or your employment, your life plans, even your identity. And so a lot of what was wisdom to me was figuring out that kind of emotional aspect of getting the possibility of turning your mindset to being open to opportunity. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that like a positive mindset is going to cure all because I, I don't, I don't believe that, but there is a place for it because, you know, while your, you know, rib may come, subluxed and be out or your knee or whatever it is positive mindset is not going to fix that but a positive mindset might actually help you cope a little bit better with the fact that you need to get help with that and that you need to reach out and get whether it's like a pt or training or a tool or an app or you know a, a, a you know whatever having an approach that says i can do this is going to help you move the needle a lot more than having an approach that says, no, I can't. Mm -hmm. So that's really an important one for me is that mindset piece. Um, You know, everyone is different and and their treatment is different and the way that we present ourselves in the spectrum across, you know, hypermobile EDS is different. 
And you may try one thing like, you know, prolotherapy or whatever, and it may work for you and it may not work for me. I mean, everyone is different. And for me, this is a little bit, I, I like to talk about, you know, the zebra because it's something most of us can relate to as our sort of mascot. It's our pink ribbon, you know, that puts us together. And I did some research on zebras and I didn't know some of these interesting facts that like their stripes on their body are as unique as human fingerprints. Mm -hmm. There, there, no other zebra has the same stripes as another zebra. Just like my fingerprints are completely different from every other human being on this planet. And that's kind of fascinating to me. And that tells a little bit of a story of what this is like to face this diagnosis that we're all different, but we're all the same. And so like those stripes on a zebra are not the same. Um, you know, our, our challenges, our comorbidities, none of it is the same. And maybe we're invisible to others, but we are certainly able to recognize each mm -hmm. other. And those are the things that like bring us together. And for me, that's kind of the most important you know, you talk about tips or tricks or how you do this. For me, it's been other people being able to support me through a really challenging time. And, you know, the, the, the bonds that you can form with total strangers mm -hmm. um, on social media or on through a podcast or whatever is such a gift. I mean, it really is. It's such a gift. Definitely. I, as difficult as this experience has been and for people that are diagnosed later in life, like um, we both experienced, there can be a, a period of uh, almost like grieving the loss of the, you know, who we thought we were, or like, like you were saying, like being moving that focus from being career focused or, you know, what was going on before, because it can be very disruptive, but I don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, and the people that I've met, over the years, when I speak with hypermobile people, I, I almost always have this goosebump sensation of like speaking to a long lost cousin kind of thing, mm -hmm. because we there's there is so much commonality, there's so much difference, and there's so much commonality. Um, but I've certainly, you know, connected with some of the most amazing people that I've met in my entire life. And um, so it really is um, a true double edged sword in a lot of ways. It's really challenging. Um, but finding those people, but it's really beautiful yes, too. Absolutely. Yeah. It can, it's, it's truly fulfilling in a way that, you know, I've had been lacking really up until that point and kind of always feeling out of place and feeling like I was strange. And, um, when you meet and talk to other people who are going through, um, sometimes virtually the exact same thing you're going through, it, it definitely makes you feel less alone and that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just us. There's, you know, connective tissue is really throughout the entire body. And so it, you know, these conditions can have truly systemic, um, or if not systemic, you know, the, the complications that can arise can be, can be really challenging. Um, but having people to talk to who just get it and, um, you know, and can share their own stories back and forth that it's beautiful is, is a great descriptor for that. Absolutely. Yep. Finding, finding people who get it is huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
segueing into my next question, you know, so we've kind of covered the people who get it, but now going to the people who don't get it, um, how do you talk to others about your diagnoses and your conditions? And have you found it difficult to explain EDS to people that don't have the condition or are unfamiliar with it? Or do you have tactics for explaining what you're going through? You know, you're right. It is a challenge and it's difficult for even those of us who are researching it sometimes to understand because so many systems are affected and, you know, the problem lying in our collagen leads to symptoms in so many various ways. Like we've talked about, you know, gastro, cardio, skin, muscular, you know, and, and doctors don't put it together and we certainly don't know how to put it together. We're not trained for look for that, but you know, back to the zebra analogy, you know, we're, we're not necessarily rare. We can happen. Um, you know, there's millions of us. And so, you know, what's, what is the way, what is the way to talk about your diagnosis? Um, you know, it's unfortunately that a lot of people dismiss us and, or they think we're too complex or overreactive, you know, but I find to be able to talk about this, both with like my loved ones and my providers is to be as calm and organized of a patient as I can be, because they'll take you a little more seriously. Um, and then, you know, if you present your symptoms and you track the information and you show up with the doctor and you talk about the evidence and the data behind what you're seeing. Like for example, you know, you're, you're tracking your food intake and you're tracking your heart rate and you're tracking these other things. Yes, it's a giant pain to track all that, but there's a lot of apps that do that now. But if you can go into your doctor and you can go, look, here's my data, you're more likely to be believed than when you go in and just say it with your own words. And that's a shame, but it's the facts. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the ways, you know, sort of being calm and organized and, you know, presenting data is, is helpful, particularly in the medical community. Um, in terms of explaining it to your loved ones, that's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sometimes you, you have to do what you have to do to prioritize your own self-care and your well-being. Um, because sometimes other people don't understand and they don't get it and, and they're never going to get it, um, which is a, 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 in turn a good thing because that means they don't have it. You know, you don't want them to get it. You don't want them to understand because they'd be facing it too. And, um, you know, whatever kind of chronic illness, you know, that they might face or, you know, health scare or cancer scare, you know, you don't get it until you get mm -hmm. it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for that reason, when I'm explaining it to like lay people, um, I often focus or I typically focus on the hypermobile component of this because it's something that people can understand and that I think is descriptive. Um, you know, to me, the words Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, none of those describe my lived experience. <laughs> and, you know, the word syndrome is so stigmatized and, and kind of scary for a lot of people. And so I, I that's personally just kind of how I've chosen to navigate it. But I know that has its limitations too, because 
there's a sense of, oh, you're flexible, you're double jointed, you know, that must be so nice. You must, you know, be able to be show me a cool party trick. You're probably great at yoga. You're, you know, probably great dancer, all these kind of things. And for me, not at all. I often joke, I have two left feet. But um, yeah, it just so it's a very kind of personal and difficult thing, like how we all um, are able to describe and, and talk about this and, and having been, you know, go, going through that experience of not being believed, um, it, it, it's so damaging, but, um, mm-hmm. so it's something that, you know, unfortunately many of us are just still struggling with at an individual level. And that's why, you know, going back to like the kind of macro level, how do we get awareness in the public consciousness? I've long thought we need like an ice bucket challenge equivalent, Oh, absolutely. Like something that's really viral because that raised so much awareness for ALS. And um, yeah, we just need something that is going to, you know, kind of permeate and, and, and wake people up to the seriousness of this condition. Because, yeah, you were saying like, it's, it's a good thing when people don't get it, because it means they don't have it. But there's also this tragedy of there's a lot of conditions, you know, ALS is a good one where people do get how serious it is. And, and so they have that kind of empathy. And so I think it's possible to happen with Ehlers-Danlos too, but it's, it's going to take something big to kind of cut through, um, you know, the, the noise out there and, and really resonate with people. You know, and I agree with you completely on that. The ALS ice bucket challenge was, you know, a miraculous effort in that, you know, it went viral and, and went around the world and helped people understand something that was a three-letter acronym that they didn't know anything about what it was. But the literal, you know, like shocking their system, you know, it got the word out. And I mean, if I could, if, if all of us collectively could sort of figure out what that thing is for EDS, you know, like, let's do mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this. And I thought about doing some kind of like bendy challenge or something like that to, you know, have people do the basics, but I don't want to be encouraging that at a large scale because one of the, you know, big tips they tell us all the time is don't do your party tricks. And, you know, for the longest time in my life, I would, when people say, you know, what's an interesting fact about you? My go-to fun fact was that I could cross both my elbows behind my back. Um, And so that's like the first thing that you learn not to do because, oh, poor shoulders, you know, having... Yeah, yeah. Everything, spine, neck. Ugh, it's just, it's like giving me the creeps just thinking that I've. Yeah, yeah. Teach the younger generation, like, don't do the party tricks. It's not good for you. Yeah. So it's like, I definitely don't want to be encouraging anyone, especially, you know, young people who who are still kind of forming their connective tissue to be um, doing those things that can be harmful. Um, but so it's like, yeah, we need that kind of striking visual and something that others can participate in. Like the ice bucket challenge became something that the general population was really interested in doing because it's fun. And, um, you know, it's just, it, it really, well, I, I haven't done it. I assume it's actually kind of unpleasant. Like I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine, Oh, like I get cold very easily. So that also is just giving me, Oh, like not that, that one's not for me. And that would definitely that would not be good for um, our, you know, hypermobile community. But if anyone else out, out there has any ideas for our equivalent, um, definitely feel free to reach out. Um, one last question before we wrap up, because um, this has been, you know, such an, uh, a great um, conversation. And thank you for your time. 
Um, for people out there who are struggling to find support, whether it be help with day-to-day living, insurance issues, their doctors not understanding Ehlers-Danlos or related comorbidities, what resources do you typically recommend? The number one resource is protect your own self-care. Um, and that's a huge lesson. Like if you can accomplish that, you've done a great job. Um, you know, to know you're not alone. Um, and you know, those are, those are hard hurdles to cross. Um, beyond that, you know, get involved in, you know, following podcasts or reading books or, you know, going to webinars or getting, you know, information from foundations, you know, that have these organizations like Chronic Pain Partners that does interviews with experts and, you know, shares this information. And, you know, the, the, the resource that I would recommend is you, like, don't stop searching for answers. Um, in my book, I tried to collect as many resources as I could. And, you know, that's a, like I said, you hit print and it's out of date. I mean, there are countless things that you can try from, you know, rare disease legislation to, you know, this foundation, but, you know, figure out the way to find credible information that you can trust. Uh, Call a friend, you know, call me, listen to your podcast, subscribe, you know, just, just don't give up because you're not alone. Um, you know, I feel privileged to have had the people that participated in my book, the doctors and the, the leaders of nonprofit organizations, um, you know, where everyone came together in the sense to, to do this, you know, like crowdsource your care, as I call it, um, because there's just not enough resources. So if all of us are sharing knowledge and helping one another, then that knowledge is power. Definitely. And, and, and in that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to kind of overcome this and get to a faster diagnosis and better treatment. And the next generation we talked about maybe won't have to struggle so much. Definitely. I think that's a really important point and one that we're going to be covering in more detail in a future episode this fall, um, that importance of learning to form a relationship with yourself and, and be able to, you know, keep looking for information, but also a lesson that I've learned in this is to, you know, realize that anything out there, especially from an individual patient's experience, um, you know, something that works or really doesn't work for them, you know, may not be the case for me. So it's also that like, learning to, it's, you know, the expression, take things with a grain of salt, but really kind of run things by your own internal gut check, because I know I've gotten my hopes way up over things that seemed like they were phenomenal treatments that just didn't work with my body. And that can be so disappointing. And so it, it's incredibly important to form, you know, kind of reestablish that relationships with, with ourselves that gets kind of lost in the hustle and bustle of life. Um, and be able to be really conscious consumers of what we're reading and doing and, and realize that, um, you know, what, what, what's one person's medicine might be another person's poison and, and vice versa. And so, but I think that's just an incredibly important point to make to just 
you know, just try to, to keep going and, and try to look for those things that resonate with you. And I like that approach of, um, it's another doctor who talks about this and I can't remember his name at the moment, but the idea of, you know, when you're really suffering and at rock bottom, like a 10% increase here, 10% decrease in pain here, like just going for those quote unquote little wins or small victories, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they can seem trivial. Like you mentioned earlier about the water. Like I remember, you know, learning, Oh, I have to really up my salt intake and just thinking like, no, I mean, this is really serious. How is water and electrolytes going to, you know, I already was drinking a fair bit, but uh, really committing to that and, and spending, you know, really being conscious and trying to keep up and keep the tally and make sure I'm getting those electrolyte supplements. And speaking of which, a listener reached out and mentioned that I had mentioned Gatorade on a past episode and mentioned that, um, it had something in it. I think it might be citric acid, which may be inflammatory. So I guess just a note that, um, you know, yeah, you gotta be careful. Yeah, anything that we talk about here, like I said, one person's medicine might be another person's poison. So really um, as much as we can, and it's so difficult because so many people are really suffering and just trying to, you know, just trying to keep their heads above water essentially. But the more we can look for those, um, those little tangible proactive things that we can do to take some of that control back. I think that's, it, it's really incredibly helpful when, when we're in the state of mind to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, like we've said, I really think it's like a joint effort of, of this whole community coming together to level up the game for both, you know, ourselves, for each other, for the future of healthcare you know, I've, I've advocated before Congress and, you know, trying to teach other people how to self-advocate and it's not enough. I mean, but you have to start with the simple right there with your own self at mm-hmm. home. Absolutely. Definitely. Uh, well, thank you so much, Christy Cox, for joining us today. And thank you for your excellent book um, on living with the challenges of hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos. And it's so encouraging to see that hypermobility is starting to become more recognized, um, even though it's slow. Uh, And that idea of being a patient patient certainly speaks to me. Um, uh, But this book is a key piece in getting more awareness out there. Um, So thank you so much, Christy. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for sharing your time and your attention. And, you know, thank you for your passionate work to, to all that's happening in the community. It's, it's people like you that are going to, you know, help move it. So thanks. And right back at you. I look forward to um, speaking with you further. I'm always excited to learn what your, what your new projects are, but again, also hoping that you can take some rest, much needed (laughs) um, rest and time to um, put your own oxygen mask on too. You bet. All right. Be well. Thanks. You too. That's all for this episode of the Hypermobility Happy Hour. As always, feel free to reach out to us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com with any questions, feedback, suggestions for future episodes or topics. Um, And thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye.